0: Our Old Testament reading this morning is Psalm 75, and you can find that on page 487 in the Bibles we provide. We give thanks to you, O God, we give thanks, for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars I say to the boastful, do not boast, and to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high, or speak with haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west, and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs but I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. The word of the Lord. And our New Testament selection today is Revelation 16, and it's verses one and then verses 17 through 19. And you can find that on page 1037. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. The word of the Lord.
1: We return to the gospel according to John. Uh, The past few weeks we looked at uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer, John 17. And even though it is a bit liturgically out of place because Palm Sunday is this coming Sunday, and uh, then Holy Week, we're already well into the events of Holy Week, but I did think it would be fruitful to follow uh, that study of the high Priestly prayer by looking at John 18 and the events that immediately followed. So we'll be reading a rather long passage. I encourage you to read along in one of our Bibles, John 18 and we'll read down through verse 27. When Jesus had spoken these words, that is the prayer that we've been studying, when Jesus had spoken these words, He went out with His disciples across the brook Kidron, and there was a garden which He and His disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed Him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with His disciples. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I've not lost one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter following Jesus, uh, followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world, I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who've heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he'd said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I've said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off asked, did I not see you at the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. The gospel of Christ. The most striking thing to me about this chapter is that Jesus is clearly in command of the situation. He is the one who's arrested, taken before His interrogators, slapped. He will be bound, He will be scourged. Before too many more hours are passed, He will be crucified. And yet, He's clearly in command from the very opening of the chapter. He goes out to meet those who've come to arrest him and says, whom are you looking for? He answers not as a person who's terrified, but as one who knows what is just and will continue to speak justice even though he gets slapped for it. He's not in any way cowed. Jesus met his betrayer in order that he might be our advocate. Jesus was bound in order that you and I might be set free. He was wounded that we might be healed, and he would die so that we might have life. Jesus here embraces his destiny so that you and I might have a destiny beyond anything That we could ever achieve apart from His grace. He meets the situation with the words, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? In stark contrast is the unraveling of His chief disciple, Simon Peter. Peter who had sworn that he'd go with him even to death, even if all the rest of them fall away, I will go with you, I'm willing to die with you, and who meant every word of it unravels as the scene goes on. And we might well ask, well, isn't that what we would expect? The one is the God-man, the other simply human like all of us. And at one level, well, of course, yes, Jesus who became sin for us was one who knew no sin of his own. But at another level, no, that's too easy a dismissal of the contrast. Because Jesus, as the Gospels and as Paul and his reflections on the incarnation, all together make clear, laid aside his glory, set aside his prerogatives, and chose to live his life according to the very same means of grace available to every Old Covenant believer, including Peter and the other disciples. And Jesus, in fact, had come in order to make us like Him. And so drawing a sharp contrast between these two is fruitful not only for understanding what took place but it is instructive to us because in Simon Peter, we see natural humanity still living, one who has for three years followed Jesus, sat under his teaching, done ministry with him, been empowered to go out and heal people, one who has had tremendous insights and been commended by the Lord, one who, frankly, along with John, Is with Him when all the other disciples have fled, and yet one who represents the best that we can do apart from the extraordinary saving grace of God. Jesus, on the other hand, is a picture of what He came to make us, not just to do for us but to make us. We are to be remade and be growing by grace in to what God has declared us to be. And so we don't look at Jesus here and seek to model on him in order that we might sufficiently please God in order to receive blessing or to be saved. God's grace is his gift to us. That's what makes it grace. But too many Christians, particularly in our day and in our culture, think that it's all simply about receiving forgiveness when it is a radical call to a whole new life. And this same Simon Peter will one day write to a group of Christians facing persecution, saying that Jesus suffered as He did, leaving us an example that we might follow in His steps. Why, within a few weeks, Peter will stand and preach boldly the Pentecost sermon in the heart of Jerusalem where Jesus endured such suffering and death. And so, I want us this morning to see the sharp contrast between Jesus and Simon Peter, and particularly to note four aspects of the contrast, and they are these. First of all, to note the very different attitude with which each approached this moment of crisis. Jesus continued all the way up the road to tell the disciples the crisis is coming, the moment is coming. When we get to Jerusalem, this is what's going to happen. So Peter, at least at one level, knew it was coming, and I want us first to look at the difference in the attitude of Jesus and Peter as they approached the crisis. Secondly, we will look at the difference in the way that they prepared for the crisis. Then thirdly, the difference in the way that they responded to the crisis. And finally, the difference revealed about their own self-understanding in the midst of the crisis. Just those four things. First, this radically different attitude with which they traveled toward this moment, the great hinge in history when everything changed. What do I mean? Well, it's very clear The contrast between Jesus' profound and joyful humility in the obedience of his total trust in his Father and Peter's pride. And we see it. Peter is, in many ways, always the incarnation, it seems, of all of the disciples and of all of us at our worst. And if I'm just talking to myself this morning, you all are way further down the road than I am, and I commend you. Pray for me. But as I read this and I see Peter, I see so much of myself. All the way up the road to Jerusalem as we've seen, there's an argument going on among the disciples. Just in Matthew's Gospel between chapter 16 and chapter 20, three times Jesus says to His disciples, we're on the way to Jerusalem. When we get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be delivered over to my enemies. I'm going to be put to death, but in three days I will rise from the dead. And every time the response of the disciples is one of consternation, of fear, and an argument over which of them will be greatest in the kingdom. It's, it's like a badly written script, a bad comedy. I mean, you go, how do you get from Jesus saying, we're going there to suffer? and the disciples arguing over which will be greatest. As we've seen before in chapter 20 of Matthew, James and John get their mother to go with them to ask for the places of honor at his right and left hand. And Jesus asked them, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Did you know that was the theme in all those three Scripture lessons that we read this morning, Psalm 75? He speaks of the cup of God's wrath being poured out on the wicked who reject the grace of God. It is seen again in Revelation 16 when he depicts the outpouring of the bowls of God's wrath. And finally, Babylon, the the city of man, the wicked city in rebellion against the city of God, is made to drink the cup of God's wrath. That's what we see in this picture. And Peter is just obsessed with himself Jesus has laid aside His glory in order to glorify His Father by saving a group of rebels like you and me and preparing us to share in His glory. He laid it aside. He gave Himself self-forgetfully for the Father and for others. The Son of Man, He said, did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so that was his attitude, self-giving, self-service, self-emptying. Peter sought glory for himself on his own terms. Peter followed Jesus because he thought, this may be the Messiah, and if I follow him and he takes David's throne, I can be more than just a fisherman. My life will have meaning, ultimate meaning. I will be right there at the epicenter of Israel's renewal. I will know power and wealth and and all the good things that when I read of the days of David and Solomon marked Israel out as God's favored people. We're going to have it all again, and I want to be there. And as Jesus tried to tell them, my kingdom is not of this world, not at this time, They did not want to hear it. Peter did not want to hear it because he was seeking his glory. And I don't know about you, but times in my life when I've been so profoundly disappointed because I thought what God had called me to do and to be was this thing here. And suddenly, it doesn't look like that now. Or I'm getting old. The glory days are past. talked about that last week. The tendency of thinking, yeah, it was a great run, but it's almost over. What in the world now? My life, whatever it meant, it's in the past. Rear-view mirror. That's, That's it. And it's to utterly fail to understand the nature of the kingdom and the nature of discipleship and what it is that Jesus is inviting us into. The one attitude is my life is mine to give away for His glory and their good. The other is, all of this exists somehow to give me meaning, a sense of purpose and significance and joy. And because they had such a different attitude, we see them train for this moment, prepare for it totally differently. We see it in the garden. John takes the story right up immediately at the arrest, but the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Describe for us the events preceding this arrest. You remember what happened? Jesus left Jerusalem so that the disciples wouldn't be in an enclosed place where they could all be arrested and taken away. He went out to the Garden of Gethsemane, and there He left most of them and took the three that were closest to Him and said, come with me. My soul is, is so deeply troubled Watch and pray. Watch in the Bible always means stay awake. Watch and pray. Stay awake and pray that you not enter into temptation. I want you standing with me. You promised that you'd stand with me. I want you to do it. This is how you'll do it. Watch and pray. Then he went a little further and poured his heart out in prayer. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He wasn't talking simply about the physical agony of crucifixion, though I'm sure within his human flesh there was a fear of it. But when he talked about the cup, he was talking about the cup of God's wrath that he was about to drink when he would bear the wrath of God toward sin. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And so in that moment, when they came, he was able to step forward and say, Whom do you seek? And to turn to Peter and say, The cup that the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Peter slept. Why? This wasn't a one-off. Whenever in the the Gospels we see Jesus get up early in the morning and go out to a deserted place and pray, have you ever noticed that there's never a single disciple with Him? They're still sleeping. Then sometimes it shows them going and finding Him and going, where have you been? Everybody's looking for you. Jesus has been at prayer. Jesus, we see in the Gospels, up all night on the mountainside praying, alone. Why? Because the disciples thought the kingdom was here and now, and that it had to be fought for the way that we would fight to preserve a nation, that it was an earthly kingdom. And so Peter had eaten well, so he was feeling strong, but he knew he needed sleep. The crisis is coming. I want to be rested. I want to be ready. And so he slept because he thought that the battle was going to be against flesh and blood. Jesus came three times, found them sleeping, shook his head, said, could you not watch with me one hour? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Peter thought that for the flesh to be strong, you needed to eat right. Passover meal, let me tell you, I've eaten them. That's a good meal. So he'd eaten well the night before. And then he'd he'd been sleeping. He was ready. He was ready for action, ready for what might come. Because he thought that what ultimately mattered was that we be strong in the ways of the world. Jesus said, your spirit is willing to do battle, but your flesh is actually too weak to fight because you want everything to be in service to your body, but your body has to be in service to your spirit or no matter how big your muscles are, you are a moral weakling. Peter discovered that to his chagrin. When the crisis came, the response of the two was totally different. Jesus steps forward. Peter didn't run. Peter drew his sword. He said, it's here, and I'm ready. He wanted a knife fight. They're here. I'm big. I'm strong. I've eaten. I've slept. I'm ready for it. He draws his sword. That poor servant of the high priest, he's just a servant. He's just, the high priest said, come on, we're going up. say to He's there. Poor guy, he's in the way of the sword, gets his ear cut off for Pete's sake. And Jesus says, put your sword away. See, Peter wasn't initially a coward. He just didn't realize the battle that was before him. But when Jesus said, put your sword away, the cup that the Father's given me to drink, shall I not drink it? Peter's whole worldview began to collapse. What he'd thought, what he'd been preparing for, what he'd been anticipating, was not the battle before him, and he suddenly began to realize that he had no resources to fight this battle. He'd been following Jesus physically, but he had not yet begun to follow Jesus spiritually. And so when the real crisis came, everything changed and he became weaker and weaker and weaker until before the night was over, he utterly unraveled. And that comes clear in the final thing that we see, the contrast in self-understanding that really lies at the basis of these first three contrasts, the contrast in attitude, in preparation, in response, all had to do with their understanding of who they were, of their own identity. It comes out clearly, actually, if you read footnotes or read Greek. Our translation, a great translation, follows most translations in having Jesus answer. We are seeking Jesus of Nazareth by saying, I am He, but that's not actually, literally, what Jesus said. And if you look down at the footnote one in the ESV, it says Greek or G-K, Greek, I am. John, Jesus, of course, was speaking Hebrew or Aramaic form of Hebrew. John is writing in Greek and he translates what Jesus says with the words ego e I am. Whom do you seek? We seek Jesus of Nazareth. I am, and they all fall down. Why? Because I am, as we saw last week at the end of Jesus' high priestly prayer, was the name, the covenant name of God, too holy to speak. Do you remember? At the end of the prayer, Jesus said, I've given them your name. Keep them in your name. And we asked, what did he mean by that? What does it mean to keep someone in your name? What did he mean by saying, I've given them your name? And we saw that it harkened back to that moment at the beginning of Israel's history when Moses stood barefoot before a a bush that burned and was not consumed. And God said, I'm sending you back now. Set my people free. Go get them out of Egypt. And he said, who am I that you should send me? And who are you? And God answered the question, Who are you? Not with his generic name that Moses already knew, El or Elohim. All the nations knew God by that name. But when Moses said, Whom shall I say has sent me? He was asking for God's covenant name. He was saying, Basically, what's your family name? How are you known at home? And God says, I am. Tell them, I am has sent me. I am that I am. and As we saw last week, that name, pronounced Yahweh in Hebrew, was considered so holy by Israel that they would not ever dare to say it in worship, in song, in Psalm. If they were reading the Scriptures, they would not say that name. They were taught to say, when they saw Yahweh say, Adonai, Lord, because if you become accustomed to saying that name, you may sometime blurt it out as a curse, and you will come under God's wrath. So they would say, in fact, in your Old Testaments, if you've got a modern translation, do you ever notice that sometimes Lord is all capital, and other times it's just capital L and small O-R-D? That's a crucial distinction. When it's all capital, that's Yahweh. That's acknowledging that it it doesn't say Lord, it says Yahweh, but say Lord. It's following the Jewish practice. When it's capital L, small O-R-D, it's Adonai, Lord. When the rabbis translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, they translated I am wherever it appeared in the Old Testament with the words ego eimi I am and now Jesus steps forth and says ego eimi and John three times cites ego eimi ego eimi once reflexively and then when they've fallen down Jesus asks them again whom do you seek Jesus of Nazareth ego eimi I am Now, why does that matter? It matters because Jesus' own self-understanding, his identity, was never autonomous. He never acted apart. He said, I have come not to do my will, but the Father's will. He who has seen me has seen the Father. I and the Father are one. His whole identity was completely tied to his Father, to God the great God of creation and deliverance, the great I Am. So Jesus said, I am, I am, I am. When Peter tried to follow, but now falling further and further behind in his confusion as his life and his own self-understanding and misunderstanding of God's kingdom causes this collapse, necessary collapse he is asked, and are you with him? And he says, I am not. I am not. I am not. John has shown us in stark contrast, Jesus' identity is completely consumed with God. Peter still thinks that he belongs to himself, that he's autonomous, that he's a law to himself, that he can Do what he wants to do, go where he wants to go, spend as he wants to spend, plan as he wants to plan. He's his own man. Follow whom he chooses to follow. Run when he chooses to run. And he had to collapse, he had to come to this and have his whole world collapse before he could be born anew, before he could become the person who would write in that beautiful opening passage of his first epistle. We have been, but thanks be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we've been born anew to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven, ready to be revealed at the last day. Now, you see, his whole view of the kingdom had changed. His whole view of who he was and of what life was about had changed. Now his identity was in Christ. And so I simply end and ask you as we are one week from Holy Week, whether you've yet closed with this reality, as I've been asking myself whether I have. Are we just limping toward Holy Week because we still think our lives are our own, we still think that salvation is just Jesus died so I can be forgiven when I screw up, or do we realize that? Yes, praise God, there's forgiveness, but it's a call to new life. It's a, come follow me. Jesus says, don't be like that anymore, Peter. That's the past. That man is dead now. New life. Have you been called by God's grace to new life? Is God's Spirit in you, drawing you? What is your identity? What's your attitude? Whose glory do you seek? Whose glory do I seek? How do we prepare for life? How do we prepare for death? How do we respond when danger comes and crises? Do we know yet who we are in Christ? Whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. You know whom you are seeking. He said, I am.